Morning. I am really delighted to introduce our preacher today. And um, in one sense, you could say she is a guest, but not really, um, because it's Sarah Smith. And many of you know Sarah, and she's been here for a long time. But if you're new to Christ Church, maybe you've just come in the past year or two, let me give you a bit of an introduction. But this is also a little chance to give all the new people, and I say new like the past year or two, a little short history uh, of some aspects of our church life together. So, um, Drew and Sarah Smith came about over 10 years ago and uh, as parishioners, and then shortly after that, a few years after that, we planted a church, and we sent out uh, one of our priests and, um, paris- and some parishioners, and they planted in Northeast Austin. It's called Church of the Cross. You might have heard of that. And, um, and then Drew and Sarah both came on staff for a little while, for actually quite a while, and served several years, and then Sarah entered into the ordination process, and then a couple years ago was ordained a priest, and she joined the staff as the associate rector at our church plant, Church of the Cross. So a little bit of background on Sarah, but let me give you just a personal note. Um, Well, first of all, many of you have been loved by Sarah, you have been taught, cared for, Led, you might have been in her small group and been pastored by her. Um, some of you here in the room were youth when she was here doing our youth catechism, and some of you were discipled by Sarah as a youth here in the church. And so, different, many different ministries in which you might have been personally blessed. I want to tell you one of the things that I love um, just about Sarah and her ministry, and that is I love the way that Sarah loves God's Word. She just has a delight uh, in God's word, a trust, a yieldedness to God's word. She delights in, in God's word. And when she teaches, she also draws me to see not only the word afresh, it just gives me a fresh perspective, something about the way she approaches it and teaches and communicates it, but also gives me a fresh view of Jesus. I love to see Jesus through her eyes. So um, come on up, Sarah, and I would love to pray for you. And she's going to continue in the series that we've been on uh, this summer. Father, thank you for Sarah and her ministry, her ministry years here at Christ Church, her ministry at Church of the Cross now. And we ask that you would come in the power of your Holy Spirit, speak through Sarah, speak to us. Would you send your spirit to open up our hearts, make our hearts tender and soft and receptive to your word to us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Cliff. Good morning, Christ Church. It's always a joy to worship with you again. Every time I come back, I look at the once tiny plants and the once tiny children, and I am always a little bit surprised by how much they have flourished. It's good to see you flourishing. This present series around N.T. Wright's Simply Christian has taken you places. You have heard echoes of God. You have stared at the sun. And now I'm delighted to join you as we ponder what it means to reflect the image. This morning we'll contemplate those two peculiar commitments of Christians, Scripture and the church. If I were to make a list of things that remind me that I do not follow a God of my own making, my commitment to Scripture and my commitment to other Christians might rival for top billing. A strange set of books 
an even stranger set of people. Both say things I would at times rather they didn't. Both can be confusing. Both can cut me. And yet here we are, gathered together, eager to hear God speak to us and to our life together from the Bible. There's something else we know, or at the very least, we suspect, that both Scripture and community can speak grace beyond what we believed possible. And both are sources of the Spirit's enlightening of our minds and hearts, our desperate need for clarity and truth. That both Scripture and community are avenues of God's healing. Exploring a bit these twin commitments, we'll look at our transfiguration past the Scripture from Seer, his attempt to remind people of the veracity of his testimony about the lordship of Jesus. He points to the transfiguration, this moment where the glory of Jesus was revealed, and basically says, don't tell me it didn't happen. I was there. And he goes on. We read in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. The prophetic word Peter refers to is most plainly the Old Testament. For Peter and for us as believers, we understand the scriptures of the Old Testament as prophetically pointing to Jesus and his reign. My family was in Costa Rica a few weeks ago, and we needed some pointers. Here's a picture I took from our time in a jungle at the foot of a volcano. What do you see? Trees, green. If you are like me, you may see a few distinct plants, and that's maybe all you can say. Flora. It was lovely, and it was dense. But we all know there's got to be more here, right? This is the kind of environment where we're still finding new species of insects and animals, right? So I know that in this moment, I am both staring life packed to the brim in the face, and I feel like I'm missing it. Enter David. David knows the forest. He's an incredibly competent, patient, and kind guide. If not for David, we would never have seen the red-eyed tree frog. We certainly would have missed the baby pit viper sitting high upon a leaf. The prophetic word, the scriptures, functions in our lives in much the same way, only more so. N.T. Wright put it like this. The Bible, in fact, is not simply an authoritative description of a saving plan, as though it were just an aerial photograph of a particular piece of landscape. It is more like the guide who takes you around the landscape and shows you how you can enjoy it to the full. By the activity of God and the person of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been brought 
and to the vast landscape of the kingdom of God. There is much to see, but so much is hiding just beyond our sight. We need a guide. Like all of God's people before us, we need the scriptures, or else beauty becomes confusion, melody becomes noise. Without them, we look at the expanse and we say green. We say something like salvation, but we say it without a learned affection for God. We say salvation without cultivating our ability to navigate this in-between time faithfully. We need a guide like Scripture to see clearly. And we need a guide like Scripture to live wisely. One of the pieces of advice David offered as he showed us the pit viper was this. Don't pull on leaves in the jungle. The animals are so camouflaged that you could end up with a snake on your head. This is guidance I needed. This is guidance my children also needed. They are much more likely to walk around pulling leaves. Participating with joy in God's kingdom here and now requires such guidance. We need to know how to engage reality and beauty while avoiding pit vipers. Attend to the prophetic word, says Peter, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. I love that particular image, and I love it because there are a lot of things we think we need to navigate life successfully. Cleverness, ambition, physical capacities, or physique. But if you're in a dark place, you can add all those things to your life, all of those things to your person, and it wouldn't make a lick of difference. You need light. But there's a problem. Let's take for granted that we want to be guided by Scripture. We are aware of our need for light. The Bible is to current sensibilities, not exactly a page-turner. It does not fit neatly into the beach-read category. Many times we would rather read books that talk about the Bible than the Bible itself. We'd rather listen to a podcast, stream a second or third sermon than crack it open ourselves. And I get it. Part of the reason we do sometimes, and we do that sometimes, is because we need a guide for our guide. The Bible is a collection of books that is approaching 2,000 years old. And though we have multiple trustworthy translations, the genres are unfamiliar, and our scripture muscles are quick to atrophy when we've been in a season of more glancing passes glancing engagement. So how do we take a faithful step towards heeding the scriptures, toward personally meeting God in his living word? Following the lectionary or other Bible reading plans and apps can be incredibly helpful, all the more powerful when done with others. I highly commend them. 
And at the same time, it's easy to lose steam. You missed two days and now you're lost. What chapter am I in again? Or maybe you chose a particularly aggressive plan and have no way to make up the reading in any meaningful way. Maybe you've given up when you got stuck in numbers again. But using that analogy of muscles, of scripture muscles, I want to suggest humbler beginnings. When there is a certain weight you want to lift, maybe a certain weight you want to squat, you would never start with the full amount. That is a sure and quick way to injury. I know when I got up here today, you thought to yourself, she's going to tell me something about lifting. <laughs> Get it all the time. I would encourage you, if you're re-engaging scripture, I would encourage you to not finally tackle Jeremiah, right? Rather, start with the so small you might miss it book of Philemon. Watch the Bible Project video, orient yourself, and then prayerfully read those 25 verses. Build up your muscles for Scripture by having something like the Bible Project as a spotter and by beginning with shorter books. Go at a speed that is meaningful for you. Consider having rest days as you would with strength training, or instead of consuming more or pushing harder, you let the lift do its work. Reflect on what you've read. Talk to the Lord about it. Consider what meaningful obedience the Spirit is prompting. However you choose to engage Scripture, you have found in it a trustworthy guide, one who knows the joys and dangers of this in-between time, we will do well to pay attention to it. Now our second consideration, Scripture as grace. The gospel Peter and the apostles have preached is getting pushback. First, as we've alluded to a bit, there's the charge that Peter is hearing that they've made this up, especially the part about Jesus being given authority to judge and that he will return in glory. But secondarily, there is this pushback on the prophetic word, the Old Testament itself. Sure, the critics might say, something happened. Those writers had dreams. They had visions, divine moments even. We can affirm that. But then they and their humanity, the ancients went and interpreted them. And we all know that interpretation is mixed up. The prophetic word of Scripture isn't trustworthy. We hear some version of that same argument today. Peter's response is not what we might consider an apologetic on the authority and inspired nature of the Scriptures. But if you find yourself asking those same questions, you are in good company. I would commend to you those chapters of Simply Christian, chapters 13 and 14. And he Wright captures nuances of language and theology in ways we won't be able to cover this morning. But that's not to say the apostle left his listeners with nothing. He gave them an image. 
the image of the voice of God carrying. The Greek word for born in verses 17 and 18 and the word for produced in 21 may also be translated as carried. The image is threaded through. I'll read it for us. When Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was carried to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice carried from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever carried by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The voice of God carries. It went forth from heaven to the holy mountain. But further, as one scholar put it, humans do not carry the prophecy, the voice of God. Instead, prophecy occurs when people are carried by the Holy Spirit. The movie Rogue One, which takes place in the Star Wars narratives, ends with someone handing Princess Leia the schematics for the Death Star. Now, if you are not familiar with Star Wars worlds, or I then to a leader of the good guys. And I'll be honest, I didn't expect to be moved by this scene in the movie. I knew ahead of time that Princess Leia was CGI. And for me, that's going to take me out of the moment a bit. I'm going to be discovering how much do I think she looks like a real human. It was off-putting. But (laughs) the courier hands her a package saying, your transmission was received. What is it they sent? And she looks up and says, hope. And I wondered afterwards, why did I find that so moving? Was the John Williams score tricking my brain? Am I merely a victim of mass nostalgia? Possibly. But I think something else catches me, and maybe others, about that scene. How often do you hold hope in your hands? Hope is so frequently engaged as ephemeral, an idea, a notion, a feeling. Or if you're an Emily Dickinson fan, a thing with feathers that perches in the soul. And yet this hope was more than that. In her hands was a means of turning the tide. The Bible isn't simply a repository of true information about God, writes N.T. Wright. It is rather part of the means by which, in the power of the Spirit, the living God rescues his people and his world and takes them forward. He carries them on the journey toward his new creation and makes us agents of that new creation even as we travel. Scripture doesn't just record the voice of God that carries, that goes out. Scripture itself becomes a means by which the Spirit carries us. 
Through Scripture, He carries us, not just through this life, but He carries us into the very life of God. The voice of God carries thousands of years of intention and sacrifice, of lives given, not the least of which was the life of God and Jesus himself. A means of God's rescue, active at this very moment. And it sits in your hands. Alive, active. This is no accident. This is not a thing of your imagination, of your doing. It has been carried to you. And what have you been given? What have the prophets and apostles sent? Amongst other things, hope. Hope drawn from the deep well of the prophetic word and seen without filter in the transfiguration of Jesus. A hope carried through the generations in the words of our creed that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. You are carried, Christ Church. The Spirit and the Scriptures carry you forward, carry you even this morning into participation in the hope of glory. Lastly, let us consider the church as given. There is such beauty in these transfiguration passages, isn't there? Such shining glory in the passages this morning. And yet there's this context to explore, this context that comes before or follows or within each of these moments. After Jesus left the Mount of Transfiguration, he was met the next day with a crowd and a devastating sight, a boy, a child, and the grips of demonic oppression. Not only that, the boy's father notes that he begged for help, but the disciples couldn't cast the demon out. The glory of the mountain encounters the difficulty of life in the valleys. Moses, in our passage from Exodus, left Sinai with a second set of tablets. It's telling that it's the second set, right? While the first set was being created, the people turned and worshipped a golden calf. The glory of the mountain encounters disobedience in the foothills. And when Peter's letter is over, we know more fully what he knew in part. He was headed towards his own crucifixion. The glory of the mountain encounters death at its base. Difficulty, disobedience, and death. It's not all glory, is it? And yet, Peter spent his life girding communities of Jesus followers for their own kingdom work their own cruciform lives and deaths. God renewed his covenant with Israel after these second tablets were crafted. And he even now draws and binds himself unto the church, a people whose obedience is far from perfect. 
Jesus chose disciples to be with him at the transfiguration and still chooses us as disciples in the midst of our complexity and difficulty. Whatever else we might say about the church, about Christian community of worship, of renewal, of fellowship, we can say this, that even in the midst of difficulties, disobedience, and death, God still chooses her. And these people he is forming not only belong to him by virtue of being his children, his body, they are given to one another. And he Wright notes, though the church consists by definition of people from the widest possible variety of backgrounds, part of the point of it all is that they belong to one another and are meant to be part of the same powerful flow, going now in the same single direction. We are given to one another. We belong to one another. Some of you know me well and know that I am a fan of improv. I reference it regularly in my friendships and daily life. For an improvised scene to go well, the players have to commit to one another. In fact, improv companies and troops don't have rules that you might think like must be clever or has to land the joke. Rather, they have rules like don't leave your team hanging. In her autobiography, Yes, Please, comedic actress Amy Poehler shares about a time when she was performing improv in front of an audience. She had, in her words, bailed on a scene. She failed to commit. Maybe she found the premise cringy. Maybe she didn't think the person she was partnered up with was up to snuff. And now, in front of a live audience, right off to the side, a veteran, veteran improviser is calling her on it loudly and in the moment. And without defending herself, Amy explains, it's your job to make your partner look good. And if you're afraid to look stupid, you should probably go home. I had let my partner down. She might not have chosen her improv partner that night. There are certainly people in the capital C church we would not have chosen as partners. And there are scenes we'd probably like to bail on. But it's worth noting, we don't get to choose. The choice wasn't and isn't ours. And that's good news because I'm sure somebody in the world and maybe even in the room wouldn't have chosen us. Somebody in the room would not have chosen me. And maybe you think, no, that's not possible. You just don't know me well enough. In the context of improv, making your partner look good isn't about talking them up afterwards. It's not about inflation. It's not a PR campaign. It's about using your gifts, your ideas, your physicality to serve them in that moment without regard for how you look to others. It's about belonging to one another. That said, the temptation to bail is very real. 
Make no mistake, belonging takes place in the context of glory as well as the spaces marked by difficulty, disobedience, and death. There is very real pain and very real hardship in our life together. I'm not discounting in any way holding healthy boundaries, nor am I denying that there are seasons where part of belonging as broken people in a broken community means figuring what it looks like to engage in recovery and arrest and presence at the same time. In fact, if we take Paul's understanding of the church's body, this idea tracks. We can be wounded. And we can be healed. But we aren't healed by cutting off the stub toe. We aren't healed by amputating the broken arm. The toe and the arm belong on the body. They are given to the body for its flourishing. And the body is given to them for theirs. We live in a world that tells us our associations with others can be changed as easily as we change our outfit. But the church is not intended to be fast fashion. It's a body. It's a bride. And Jesus has chosen his church. Christ Church, where might the Lord be inviting you to live more fully into this kind of belonging? There is a a sense of endless beauty and power in those twin commitments of Scripture and the church. And there's a lot of effort. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears goes into participating in that beauty and power. Why do we do it? Okay, I asked this last service. Let's see. How many of you have seen the movie Air? the Michael Jordan sneaker biopic. Okay, a few more people. All right, all right. Okay, well, as I have mentioned, it's the movie of how Nike signed an up-and-coming Michael Jordan, how they created the Air Jordan and ended up flourishing in this time. So Sonny Vaccaro led the basketball division at Nike to go all in to try to sign Michael. Normally, they'd spread their endorsement budget among three less competitive players. They'd hedge their bets. And as a result, the division was limping along. But Sonny became convinced that Michael Jordan was different. Again, you probably guessed, lifting and Michael Jordan were things I would mention today. But Sonny believes that Michael Jordan was so different that he was willing to bet his job, his reputation on the undersized Jordan. And what's more, the movie suggests that Nike, best known at the time for its running shoes, might just shut down the whole basketball division if this doesn't pan out. Sonny wasn't just betting his job. As they worked all night on the campaign, Sonny's team lead, Rob Strasser, highlights their vulnerable position. He highlights a thing, so she rings because he works in the basketball division of Nike. 
he brings her this weekly present. And this is his most potent way of connecting with her. But with this chance, this risk, all that is threatened. I think that you may have been a little bit cavalier, Rob says, about the risks and about taking us all with you. Sonny responds with sympathy. He cares about his friend, but he doesn't shrink back. He pressed on because he saw something in Michael and said, this is it. This is the risk that's going to pay off. He's worth it. He could have been wrong. But Christ Church, we are gathered here because Jesus is worth the risk. He is worth the risk of engaging in Scripture. He is worth the risk of committing to the church, his bride. You don't need to hedge your bets. This Jesus coming again in glory is worth the risk. Let's take that risk together. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to please stand. And let us confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. <clears throat> 